makes my job easier, right? That's not why, but uh, I do appreciate the worship team. Appreciate all the volunteers, everyone in the classrooms, uh, sound and, and media, uh, greeting, coffee, all the folks that make this happen each week. I appreciate you. Uh, that last song, so Jill and I don't talk a lot about the songs uh, ahead of time. Um, she picks them, and sometimes, you know, a month or two out, out in front of when they're going to be sung. And uh, just once in a while, a, a song really just sort of meshes with uh, the message that's, uh, that's going to follow. And, and always, uh, the worship gets us in, in the right mindset and the right heart condition to do this. So that's not ever a, an issue. You can, any praise song fitly spoken or fitly sung to God is going to get you ready for the, for the word. Uh, but sometimes just go, they go hand in hand as if we spent more time uh, talking about it uh, with each other. And that's, that's like Jill said, that's God. Um, so uh, we have... If that's not you this morning, I hope by the end of the morning uh, it is. The word belief in, in the Greek uh, carries with it a whole lot more than just the idea that we usually uh, have in our mind when we say, I, I believe that. I give mental assent. I, I, I think that that's true. The word belief is so much more. I, I believe so strongly, I put my trust in. I, don't, I believe that chair will hold me, so I sit in it. I prove it. I sit in it. But it goes even beyond that. The word belief even goes into the scope of allegiance and loyalty. And that is what Jesus is calling you to. Allegiance and to loyalty. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, not just to say, I believe that he is the Son of God. The demons believe that too, and they tremble. But they ain't saved. They're not saved. Thanks, Rick. I believe in you. The one who made the deaf to hear is silencing my every fear. That's going to be a key to keep that in mind as we go through the, uh, the message this morning. The one who made the deaf to hear is silencing my every fear. The one who put death in its place. Picked a fight with death itself and came out the other side. And said, now you can too. I blazed that trail. I made that path straight. I made that road ready for you. And now you can follow me in that. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. The God who was and is and is to come. Words straight from the scriptures today. It brings the dead to life. That's what we're counting on him for. Uh, that's that we don't have hope beyond the grave, beyond that hope. If we don't find that in Jesus, we don't find it, period. So I hope that that, in the, the full expression of the term I believe, as I just laid out, I hope that that's your posture. If it's not that right now, that by the time we leave here this morning, that will be your posture. I believe in that Jesus, the Christ. The God of miracles. Because he's still doing miracles. He didn't stop just when the, when the book got finished. He didn't stop doing miracles. He's still doing miracles. That wasn't the sermon. Could have been, and maybe we'll go that direction. I don't know, but uh, we're in a new series uh, lately. Uh, so we started the we started the year um, with the idea that we wanted to pursue 2020 vision, partly because I just like stupid pastoral puns, and I can't help myself. They're funny, and look, I'm I'm the real victim here. All right, I can't help myself. If I had more control, I would exercise it, but I don't. So, uh, so pastoral puns, you get. Um, but we are looking for 2020 vision. And, uh, and to help us get there, uh, kind of a sub-series of that goal, and really I think that's going to be kind of serve as our vision for 2020 uh, the entire year. But to help us get there, uh, we're looking at, uh, at, in hindsight, right, we always like to play Monday morning quarterback because we can see everything uh, as it played out, look back and say this should have been that way or that should have been this way. But hindsight is 2020, right? And so what we're doing is we're going back to the first century. We're going back to this uh, book of Revelation that was addressed to uh, seven churches in Asia, modern-day Turkey. Uh, and they each had something to be said of them, something to be said to them. Uh, some of them had a mixture of good and bad, some things to commend them for, and some other things to say, you know what, you, you need to work on this, you need to brush up on, on this thing here. But what we're going to do in this series, we're going to try to copy or emulate those good things that we see in each of the churches, 
And they were going to try to avoid those things that, we, that, that, that they were chided for, those things that they were... Uh, Jesus, through the Apostle John, said, you know what, I have this against you. I'm not, I'm not impressed with you on this front. You need to work on these things. And we're going to try to learn from that. Last week I told you that experience is the best teacher, right? But sometimes we're addicted to the idea that it has to be my experience in order for me to learn from it. That's one of the most foolish things ever, that I have to make all the same mistakes that I hear about no, we can learn from all the collective mistakes that have been made. Really, we're in a position now, 2020, year 2020, we're in a position to, to have all the mistakes have been made. Can we agree on that? About every, nothing new under the sun, about every mistake that can be made has been made. And so we can just look at it and say, you know, I watched that person fall into that pothole. I watched that person walk into that, that rut. I saw the path they took. I saw the steps that lead to that. I'm not going to do that myself. Experience is the best teacher, but I'm going to learn from somebody else's experience. Uh, and so I shared uh, one personal example of that. Uh, I want to learn it from hindsight. Those theologians, those scholars, those uh, pastors and preachers that have gone before me have said, you know what, at the end of my life, I recognize that I didn't spend enough time with my kids. I didn't spend enough time with my family. I was so uh, getting after the, the kingdom. I was so busy about the kingdom, I was estranged from my family. And so that's one of the things that I, God has given the focus in my heart is to acknowledge that in other people. And my dear wife helps me to remember that when I get off course. Sometimes more than I want to hear, but... Can we get the camera to pan, pan over? <laughs> she doesn't even want to sit next to me uh, during life group because she doesn't like people looking at her. So if we could just have everyone look at my uh, lovely wife... Hey, I'm gonna, whoever, whoever said I'm going to get it, you're right, I'm going to get it. But I'm safe, at least for now. Now, we want to learn from these churches. There is so much chock full. I think the, the number seven represents basically the entirety of the church, uh, capital C church. The church universal is kind of represented by these seven churches. So we see a good uh, back and forth. We see a good uh, smattering of different things that we can learn from, we can grow from, and we can emulate those good things that they are commended for. Uh, so we are the second church uh, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is the uh, shortest of all the letters. Do not allow that to give you a false sense of security that I'm going to be short in my words. As, as they said, as the esteemed uh, member of the, the set Saturday Night Live once said, homie, don't play that. And... Uh, now you all be looking that up if you don't know who, who I'm talking about. In living color. Is that in living color? We'll get that edited. We'll... No, it's forever. It's forever in the annals of time. I, I, I missed the reference. but uh, So we're going to Smyrna, uh, the shortest letter of all seven. And the only, actually this is kind of just a fun trivial fact, the only one of the seven uh, still intact is a city today. All the other cities haven't been destroyed. So uh, Smyrna alone is, is there. Uh, another interesting thing about the letter to Smyrna is that it was all good. They, nothing negative to be, to be said of this church. And there's only two letters, only two churches in these seven that were commended with nothing negative to detract from that. And so we want to emulate that. Hallelujah is right. We want to emulate those things and, and, and seek to find uh, what we can from this letter. Uh, before we dive into the letter itself, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for uh, each opportunity we have in life group and uh, the Sunday morning service and, and, and praise and worship to you and the children's ministry and shaking of hands and, and uh, uh, the hugs that are exchanged. Lord, the, the, the encouragements and all those things. We want to thank you for creating a community like this that you've just called us to, to thrive in. You've called us to be a part of this. You've called us to, to get connected and you've called us to be your people, your bride, together. I thank you, Lord, for this group here this morning. I thank you, Lord, for the people of Ignite and how they uh, so well they characterize what it means to be a community of the kingdom. Lord, help us to stay straight on that course, not to veer off to the left or to the right, Lord, but to look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. Lord, I sense a great need this morning for the weight of the material that's before us in this letter to Smyrna. I sense, Lord, a great weight of responsibility to, to handle the text carefully. Uh, the, the, this heavy uh, subject matter, Lord, that 
I wouldn't want it to be crushing. But Lord, that we would see the hope beyond the heaviness of this letter and the heaviness of the situation this church was dealing with. So go before us, Lord. Let your spirit be here in power today. And might, as I said, Lord, if there's somebody here that doesn't yet believe and trust and give your, their loyalty and allegiance to you, or might the decision be made today to start that journey today. To be a lifelong disciple and follower of yours. And to teach other people to do the same. That is what you've called us to do. Help us to do it well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. I will have the text on the screen as usual. Uh, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can. The title of the message today, Promise Follows Persecution in Smyrna. Promise Follows Persecution in Smyrna. And I want you to keep in mind that this truth that was true of Smyrna is not untrue of the church today. And so these are timeless truths. These are, these are truths that were true in a historic setting, true in a, in, a, in a context, but also true of time and eternity. And so the text starts off, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna. This angel, we said last week, the angel was some sort of messenger to that church. It could be that it was actually a literal angelic messenger. I think that just as likely as any of the other options that we gave. Uh, but also it could be a pastor or elder. Somebody that would be responsible for the, uh, for the spiritual direction of the church that they were responsible for. It could be, too, that this is just speaking to the DNA or the sort of the spirit of the church in general. This is a highly symbolic book, and so I told you last week, what we're not trying to do is try to interpret every symbol for you. I'm only going to offer my, uh, my shot at interpreting these symbols uh, such as, as is needed uh, to do the point uh, of our series here, and that is to glean from these churches what we can, what we can copy, what we can emulate, what we can uh, put off, as it were. So this angel is... Uh, given this message to Smyrna. Now, Smyrna, I got a map up here. I should have had a map for you last week, and I apologize I didn't. Uh, but just so you can see where we've, where we've been and where we're going. So the, the, uh, the, the seven letters of churches go from Ephesus down uh, toward the, the bottom of the screen, and it's going to run clockwise up to Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Uh, so these letters kind of go in that order, and so you can follow along uh, as we're going. But this is to the letter of Smyrna, or the, to the city of Smyrna. 35 miles north of Ephesus, so north, northwest. And Smyrna is said to be second only to Ephesus in this area. So if it was inevitable that Ephesus being the chief city, though it wasn't the capital, if it was inevitable that Ephesus would be the first letter addressed, the first church addressed, it was inevitable that Smyrna would follow. In all ways, in all uh, purposes, uh, Smyrna was second to only Ephesus. But it had this one thing that it did better. Smyrna was one of the most beautiful cities in the area. So much more beautiful, and it had this distinction. It was a free city. So uh, most of the world uh, here at this time occupied by Rome, but Smyrna was not. Smyrna gave their loyalty to Rome long before it was cool to do so. And so they... they, they uh, they hitched their wagon to this Rome thing before it was a great superpower. And so uh, in response to that, the Roman power said to Smyrna, you know what, you're going to be a free state. You can govern yourselves uh, so long as you keep it in check. So we have uh, that distinction about Smyrna. They're loyal to Rome. We also have this distinction. It's going to be very important for our thoughts this morning. It was the largest population of Jews in the area. And with this further distinction that they were all very hostile to the Christian faith. So a high concentration of Jewish people who are also very hostile to the church. You can imagine what sort of a, a crucible that put them in, in Smyrna. If you were a Christian in Smyrna, what kind of position that puts you in? To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. As if to say, listen, this might be important. Jesus, i.e. God himself, is talking. The first and the last, the one who died and came back to life again. This idea of the first and the last, it is euphemistic, but it's also literal. Jesus was literally the first fruits of the dead, first fruits of the grave, first fruits of the resurrection. 
There's nothing before him. There'll be nothing after him. He is the literal first and last that lines up with the equivalent to the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will tell you this. If you're ever tempted to wonder if Jesus is truly divine, those words are only used in the Old Testament of God himself. One of the strongest cases for the deity of Christ we find in this passage. The first and last one who died and came to life again. This is a special comfort, especially because of the subject matter at hand, persecution. So it's a special comfort to the Christians in Smyrna, and I would say a special warning to those who are not believers. A special warning to those maybe especially, not just not believers, but they're the tormentors, the agitators, the persecutors. Look, the first and the last is talking. You would do well to listen. You would well, do well to take heed. You would do well to obey. And Jesus being the first and last, he, look, what it's saying is he's experienced everything. We, we have in Hebrews a high priest who's not unfamiliar with, unfamiliar with our sufferings, but has been through it all himself. He has been tempted like as we are yet without sin. He's been through all of it, up to and including death itself. So what is it we're going to complain to him about? That he can't say, I know exactly what you're dealing with. The great comfort for them, that he conquered everything up to and including death itself. No matter their experience, he would be with them through it all. No matter your experience this morning, no matter what you came in here dealing with today, you think of he's with this church in Smyrna. He's, he's getting ready to tell them, steal your nerves. Stiffen your back. Tighten your jaw. It's coming. It's coming perhaps like you've never seen it before. And he's telling them, I'm with you. I'm the first and the last. I've never left. When we feel like God's not sitting there next to us, who left? It wasn't God. We got up and walked away. No matter their experience, he would be with them through it all. And also a warning, this is who you are picking a fight with. You ever, as a kid, probably mostly the men in the room, you ever picked a fight with somebody and then found out they had an older brother and thought, well, maybe I don't feel so strongly about him as I once did. I have a personal experience with that. I learned real quick that you might be confident you can take this person in a fight and have all the confidence in the world until Big Brother's he's swallowed up by his shadow and so are you. But this is what they're saying. Behind the church of Smyrna is one who wasn't one to be picked a fight with. One who conquered death itself. That Jesus, that first and last Conqueror of death said this, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. This is going to exactly mirror the opposite statement said to another church later on. You think you're rich, but actually you're very poor. Well, how can this be? Well, first of all, he knows their afflictions. Again, the affirmation that he, he sees their plight. He sees what they're going through. He sees what they're about to go through. And again, if it's true of the church at Smyrna, it is true of you this morning. You did not walk in here with any baggage that Jesus is surprised about. You didn't walk in here with a complication that he's stymied over. He's not worried how he's going to get you through that. He's just sure that he is. It doesn't mean it won't be difficult, but it'll be worth following Jesus every step of the way, difficult or not. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Yet you are rich. God is present. He's near to his own, not just a distant uh, deity. We have, in our founding fathers, we had a, a great uh, tradition of belief in a God. Uh, unfortunately for many of our founding fathers, it was just that. A belief in some distant deity who uh, spun the top, as it were, created the world, and then walked away and lost interest. Well, they would, they would agree with this. They would, they would agree that that God is transcendent. He is, he is above all. He is through all. He is greater than all. Because he had to be outside of his creation. He had to be greater than his creation. But we as Christians, we as believers in Jesus Christ can say he's not just transcendent, but he is imminent. He is near to us. He is with us in all of it. 
And so as you're going through these struggles, as you're, as you're maybe putting yourself in their shoes and wondering what it was like to be in that spot, you're not praying to God a million miles away. You're praying to God sitting next to you. God is not just transcendent and powerful. He is that. But He's a God that stoops down and sits next to you in the dirt and says, you're not alone. They were indeed impoverished people. Smyrna was a very wealthy city. So why is it that all the Christians were poor? Economic oppression. It was known in this area for them to be looted and have their property confiscated, taken away, their, house, their houses smashed and left in ruins simply because they followed Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34 the author of Hebrews speaks highly of the one for whom they, they happily allowed their, their possessions to be confiscated because their treasure was not on this earth. They didn't lay up for themselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupts and thieves break through and steal. They laid up for themselves treasures in heaven where those things can't happen, won't happen. And so just like the, the, the letter of the Hebrews, so these uh, folks in Smyrna, had their goods confiscated, looted, their houses destroyed. You're impoverished for sure in a secular sense. In the worldly sense, yes, you are impoverished. Yet, you are rich. In God's economy, in God's kingdom, it's all upside down. The first will be last. The last will be first. Those that want to find their lives will have to lose it. Those that lose their lives willingly for His sake will find it. It's all upside down from this perspective of the secular kingdom of this world, from Babylon, from Rome. But in Jesus' economy, we can be as impoverished as we... And and this word poverty, it doesn't mean you didn't have the extra stuff. It meant you didn't have the basic stuff. There's two different words for poverty in the Greek. The one that's used here is the stronger one. You're you're broke. You, you You have nothing. Yet... Yet, you are rich. You have everything. Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Their treasure is not on this earth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this, These people are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, and yet Possessing everything. Can we get into, can we step into a, a place where we can believe that that's true? That no matter what the world throws at us, we can have everything, we can possess everything in Jesus, even if we have nothing, not two dimes to rub together? And some of you know how that feels, literally. You've been in a position where you, and, and who, who would say that their affection for Jesus had anything whatsoever to do with how many dimes they had to rub together? Rather, what our tendency is, is the more dimes we have to rub together, the further and the colder that our faith gets. Man, when I'm, when I'm looking at my last two dimes, I'm, I'm trusting Jesus for everything. Because I don't have it. And then you start making a little bit more money. It starts getting a little bit easier. And you start becoming more independent. Be careful you don't ever find yourself independent of the creator and sustainer of this universe. James chapter 2 and verse 5 says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? I think the point's been sufficiently made that we don't gauge our success, we don't gauge uh, our wealth by the world's standards. We don't need secular scales. We, we look to, to Jesus. He says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These are some heavy accusations, some some fighting words, if you will. I know about the slander. Uh, The slander, get the next slide up. When you think about the early church, uh, it's easy to just think, oh, they're talking mean about me. They were saying, they were gossiping about me. Actually, slander came in in a form of these six things, uh, specifically. 
They looked at the ancient church. They said they, they do this stuff about Jesus. They got all these sort of weird rituals and things that they do. One of them is communion. And they say, this is, this is his body. This is his blood. They say, what a bunch of cannibals. Filthy, savage cannibals. They have these agape love feasts. We're supposed to be a loving group so, so tightly knit. And so they have these, uh, these love feasts together that the world would interpret as lustful liaisons. Sexual orgies. You've all had your words twisted before, right? Completely taken out of context. Everything you do is taken out of context and twisted. They're accused of breaking families up because uh, what happens is one person gives their life to Jesus, the brother and sister don't, the parents don't, and so oftentimes that fractures the family. And so they're, they're accused of being people that would break families apart. This one, I got a kick out of this one, they're accused of atheism. Christians who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are accused of atheism because they don't have any little idols that they fashion and set up. There's no shrines that they set up, so they said, you're not even a real uh, theist. You don't even have the, the stuff that makes you that. So they're accused of atheism. Here's a big one. Uh, one probably the biggest reason uh, for their discomfort in Smyrna, they were politically disloyal. You know why? They refused to say that the emperor was, was God or even king. How can, how can they say Jesus is king and anybody else is at the same time? And so they were politically disloyal. And finally, because of the, largely this book and what the Christians believed about the coming destruction of the world before the recreation of the new heavens and new earth, uh, that it was going to be destroyed in fire, fervent heat. And so they were, because of that belief, they were branded as fire raisers or arsonists. And so imagine having none of those qualities and, and none of the, you don't flying, you're not, you're not flying any of those flags you're not advertising any of those things. You're not, you, that isn't you. But yet that's your reputation, where you live. Those things. And so they knew slander. They knew the twisting of words. They, have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and they couldn't wait to call you a bigot? They couldn't wait to get you to a point where they, they made you admit a certain belief that you have that isn't kosher in today's culture. And they, they, couldn't, and they, they hit you with that. Brand you as a bigot. Brand you as, when, when actually, as we talked about in life group, the greatest love you can have for somebody is to share the greatest truth you can with them. And Jesus doesn't just want to meet us at the cross. That's the beginning. Uh, he's not looking for decisions. He's looking for disciples. He's looking for people to follow him. I know what these slander from these that say they are Jews and they are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. These are sharp words. These are very, very uh, weighty words. And John draws a sharp dichotomy, a sharp contrast between good and evil, God versus Satan. And Jesus would have no other. He said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not sowing seed, you're scattering. You can't serve two masters. You've got to pick a side. You have to be loyal to one side, period. Uh, allegiant to one side, Period. That's why I want to really focus our thoughts. When we think about the word faith and belief, I, I really want to draw that out. That it's not about just a mental belief or a prayer that you prayed. It's oftentimes a starting point, but it sure as heck is not the finishing point. A real faith is a fervent faith, a growing faith, a developing faith, a maturing faith, a loyal and allegiant faith. Isn't it true that those who are phonies are often put off by those who are authentic? And so you're not just getting it from the world, you're also getting it from phony Christians who think you take things, these things too seriously. You give too much of your life to it. Just spend a little bit more, more of your time on yourself taking care of number one. God forgive us. There's only one number one, and he's not sharing that limelight with you. He goes on in verse 10, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. And it calls to my mind the lyrics to that song, silencing my every fear. 
Do not be afraid. That do not means stop and act already in progress. The Greek grammar there suggests that they're, they're already afraid. They're probably already experiencing some of this persecution of which Jesus, through John, is warning them more is coming. Do not be afraid. Imagine the weight of that charge. I, I know what's coming, and I'm scared to death. You're afraid of heights. You're afraid of maybe roller coasters. You get to the peak of that first drop, and just sheer terror for you, perhaps. You know what's coming. How can I not be afraid? I know what's coming. And as soon as you stop moving, you know that you're at that pause, that dreadful pause before it, it drops. How could they not be afraid of what was coming? Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Now, so, suffering has a way of sorting out sincerity versus insincerity, doesn't it? It's easy to, words are free. I used to say words are cheap, but they're actually free. I can say all kinds of stuff, but, but it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what I do when the pressure's on. Because all the things that I say, I can talk as tough as I want behind this pulpit. But all the things that I say mean nothing if I go out those doors, get a little pressure put on, and then I lose it. Suffering has a way of sorting that out. And there's a value, I think, in anticipating those things. So the, the Smyrnians knew it was coming. And they could take stock of what their uh, approach to this suffering was going to be. I think there's a value in that thought experiment of anticipating the covering, coming suffering. Have you ever thought through the process of maybe a, uh, another Columbine happening? Perhaps somebody storming in this church with a weapon and saying, hey, if you believe in Jesus, raise your hand. Your life's about to end. If you haven't, I, I suggest you at least think through that. Is your loyalty to Jesus such that you would lay down your life willingly and never recant your faith in him? That's what he's asking for. He's going to be more explicit about that in the text that follows. A saying that you will make the right decision isn't a guarantee that you will, but it sure helps you get ready. If you decide right now when it's easy what, how you'll respond to persecution, how you'll respond to difficult situations, it makes it a lot easier to respond that way when, it come, when the opportunity presents itself. So what's coming? What's coming? What are they about to suffer? He continues, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. We're back to this good versus evil, God versus Satan. If you're not with me, you're against me. He's going to put them in prison to test. Again, we have two different words in the Greek. Uh, one, one view of testing and, and uh, proving or, or trying is with the view toward destruction. From Satan's vantage point, it's, I'm going to test you to your breaking point so that you break. But there's another test. It's the kind that God allows to come into your life. It is not test with a view towards destruction or your demise. It's a, a test with a view towards approval or proving your faithfulness, proving your genuineness. They're going to experience these 10 days of persecution. We have no reason to take this literally. This book is a highly symbolic book, and so uh, I don't think these 10 days, we're not aware of in church history any period of 10 exact days where this church was under duress or persecution, but probably being in this very symbolic book, it's, it's saying this is symbolic for a short duration or at least a temporary period of time. And you can endure just about anything if you know it's temporary, Right? There's not much you can't do if you know there's an end point, if you know there's a stopping point somewhere in sight. How many times I told myself through boot camp and other, other experiences in life, I ran a 50-mile marathon several years ago, and I just told myself one step after another. Yeah, you want to die right now, you feel like you can't make it, just one more step, just one more step. There is an end coming. The end wasn't in sight for about 12 hours, but uh, it did eventually come. And the same is true here for this church at Smyrna. Look, be faithful. It too shall pass. Be faithful. This too, what you're dealing with right now, shall pass. Persecution is not some strange anomaly to be avoided, but a Christian blessing to be expected. I know that sounds counterintuitive. A blessing, Pastor Jeff, really a blessing to be expected? 
Well, a couple of our authors of Scripture think so. First Peter three fourteen says, Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. I'm paraphrasing here. But blessed are those persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you, happy are you, to endure those things for the cause and the sake of Christ. But you don't get there just being a fan of Jesus. You only get there being a, a determined follower of Jesus. And the expected response of all these things Jesus is saying through John, this is about to happen, don't waver, is just that the expected response is unwavering allegiance. If you, if you doubt that, look, look at the next words, be faithful even to the point of death. That doesn't leave a whole lot of wiggle room, does it? Be faithful except in these situations. Be faithful except in that situation over there. No, be faithful no matter the cost, up to and including this life that you know. Don't ever think that once you give your life to Jesus, things are going to get easier. And trust me, I'm I'm conscious of the fact that week in and week out, I, I bring these messages that I'm just trying to to not mishandle God's word. And I, and I know that sometimes I have a temptation to make it a little bit more cheerful because it's some heavy stuff. But I don't want to give people a, a false sense of security either. We are called to follow Jesus with unwavering allegiance. So don't think that if you give your life to Jesus, things are all of a sudden going to get ironed out or fixed. Oftentimes, the exact opposite is the case. You have not enlisted in the spiritual battle until you've attached your name to Jesus. And once you have, you become dangerous to the enemy. The moment you sign up for that, the moment you enlist in that army, you are made a danger to the enemy. And so long as you want to be useful to the kingdom, you will continue to be dangerous to the enemy, and you'll be worth fighting. It is a dangerous business being a devoted follower of Jesus, but it is well worth it. He's after discipleship, not decisions. Decisions often, like I said, are the starting point. That's how we, that's how we, we make a determination in our mind, I am going to follow Jesus. But then it's the rest of our lives that are the commitment of showing that true, of bearing that out, of actually being faithful. And nowhere... In this scripture, does God offer insulation against the persecution or even to keep them alive? But he says, there is promise. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you as your I will give you life as your victor's crown. Other translations have crown of life. And this is not a royal crown, this is a victor's crown. This is the crown you get when, when the game is finished, when the race is run when you've been faithful to complete the course for which you set out. You get life, and life of that eternal age, life of the eternal quality, the age to come. And that kind of life follows willingness to lay down one's life in this world. They'll be given life of that world which is to come. Verse 11, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now Jesus would tell us, don't worry about those that that, uh, that can hurt you in this life but can't do anything to your soul. What do you say in Matthew chapter 10? He says, rather fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. In Gehenna, most translations render that hell. Be fearful of the one who's the author of your life, both the, the physical substance and also the immaterial part of you. Uh, Be fearful of that person. Follow that person. The one loyal enough to lay down their life for Jesus in this world will gain life eternal in the next. Whatever you are facing today, and I mean whatever, if if it stops short of death itself, it's covered in this passage. Whatever you are facing in this life, you're not, first of all, facing it by yourself. You would collapse under the pressure immediately if you were. Take advantage of that supernatural store of energy, supernatural uh, access uh, to get through that. 
The reality of persecution is that persecution is a reality. Notice I didn't uh, try to make a symbol of this. Persecution stands for really some, uh, some other thing in your life. No, persecution means persecution, just like the test, text uh, suggests. Not a symbol to be interpreted, but a real thing. One of the most uh, famous martyrdoms in the church, a martyr is somebody who gave their life uh, for a cause. And one of the most famous in, in the early church is uh, a guy by the name of Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. Again, I don't know if those 10 days were, were a special persecution that happened during a literal 10 days or uh, 10 months or 10 years. This was actually beyond uh, even those 10 years because Polycarp lived from A.D. 69 to 155. Because what happened in 155 is he was, his life was taken from him in a pretty brutal uh, and ugly way. I want to, if you'll bear with me, we're getting towards the end here, but I just wanted to read the account of his martyrdom for you. It's at once both brutal but also beautiful. The way in which he followed through to the very end. Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, was martyred on Saturday, the 23rd of February, A.D. 155. It was the time of the public games. The city was crowded. The crowds were excited. Suddenly the shout went up, Away with the atheists. Again, the... Uh, what they called the Christians was atheists. Away with the atheists. Let Polycarp be searched for. No doubt Polycarp could have escaped, but already he had a, had a dream in which he saw the pillow under his head burning with fire. And when he woke, he told his disciples, those following him, I must be burned alive. His whereabouts were betrayed by a slave who collapsed under uh, the torment of torture. So they came to arrest him. He ordered, when they came to arrest him, he ordered that they should be given a meal and provided with all they required. Imagine love so effusive that your captors come to put you to death, you offer them a meal. He ordered that they should be given a meal and provided with all they required while he asked for himself the privilege of just this one thing, one last hour in prayer. Not even the police captain wanted to see Polycarp die. On the brief journey to the city, he pleaded with the old man, what harm is it to say Caesar is Lord? Just give in, and to offer sacrifice and be saved. But Polycarp was adamant that for him only Jesus Christ was Lord. When he entered the arena, there came a voice from heaven saying, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. The proconsul gave him the choice of cursing the name of Christ and making sacrifice to Caesar or death. To which he responded, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul threatened him with burning, and Polycarp replied, You threaten me with the fire that burns for a time, and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. So the crowds came flocking from the workshops and from the baths with bundles of wood. And the Jews, even though they were breaking the Sabbath law by carrying such burdens, were ahead of everyone in bringing wood for the fire. They were going to bind him to the stake. Leave me as I am, he said. For he who gives me power to endure the fire will grant me to remain in the flames, unmoved, even without the security he will give me by the nails. So they left him loosely bound in the flames. The, the legend goes on, and most of that, I believe, that portion uh, is, is probably factually and historically accurate. Uh, the story goes on that, uh, that as they set the fire, that uh, a wind came and blew the, blew the flames away from Polycarp's uh, body and face, uh, such that they, he wasn't dying. And so they had to come and strangle him to death and then uh, puncture him with a sword to, to make sure that he would die. Um, and some of that may be uh, legendary accretion building up, but uh, uh, what a beautiful testimony that to the end, the death itself, he was not going to curse the name of his Savior. Eighty and six years I've served loyally. Why would I give that up now? For a little bit of prosperity, for a little bit of comfort? But lest we think that that's just an ancient church example, just several thousand miles away, continent of Africa, in Nigeria, we recently, as January 13th, saw a pastor 
Pastor Luan Andimi, taken hostage by the Boko Haram terrorist organization. He said this, after being, uh, it was supposed to be a, a, uh, a hostage video where you, they're, they're fearful for their lives and, and it demonstrates just what the terrorists want. He said this, by the grace of God, I will be together with my wife, my children, and my colleagues. But if the opportunity has not been granted, maybe it is the will of God. Be patient. Don't cry. Don't worry, but thank God for everything. That's in 2020. That's this year. Christians still giving their lives up willingly in places that aren't named the United States of America. We get, so, we get lulled to sleep by the fact that it doesn't happen to us. The journalist that was uh, communicating the story to Christianity Today said this, This is completely different from most hostage videos. And Demi, the pastor, appeared as one who has already conquered death, saying to his abductors and the rest of us that he is ready to die for his faith in Christ. And that is exactly what Jesus, the Christ, has asked of the church at Smyrna. It's exactly what he's asked of us, not just to be willing to die, but to give our lives. And most of us will not know what it's like to give our lives up for Jesus. But will we willingly give the lives that we have to Jesus? Because he's equally asking for that. He's every bit as interested that you live your life for him, that you give up your life for him. And if you say you're willing to give up your life, you must by proxy be willing to give your life in life to him. Otherwise, the other one probably isn't true. How does this help us? We're trying to get uh, 2020 uh, vision here in, uh, in the year 2020. So how does that improve our focus? How does that help us to see better? How is that hindsight is 2020? Well, just a few, a few truths about persecution, and uh, with these, we'll, we will close out the service this morning. The first thing is this. A persecution is to be expected. Persecution is to be expected. We won't go to all, through all the scriptures. We've shared a number over the last several weeks about these things. It's kind of been a theme lately, unintentionally, uh, but it's been there. Uh, but a number of passages that have uh, shown that scripture is replete with examples of Christians, of believers in God, suffering for their faith. It's promised throughout Scripture. And then, if we didn't believe that, if we had a hard time swallowing that, we need only look at church history, which is also replete with examples. of Christian. I could, I could name martyr after martyr after martyr who has gone to their grave singing God's praises. We would do well to take heed. Persecution is to be expected. But it's not purposeless. Persecution has a purpose. I'll share just three ways in which persecution finds purpose. This is not an exhaustive list, just a few things that might be helpful to you. Uh, first of all is this, persecution refines. It refines us. It burns away the dross. It burns away the impurities. It burns away those things that are ugly about us. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4 says, Tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character and character hope. We don't get to those other things without first persevering. And we can't persevere unless we're giving trouble, troubling circumstances to persevere in. By definition, it requires a difficult situation to persevere. And finally, persecution finds purpose in that it perfects us. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, Consider it pure joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance, when it finds its completion, brings you up into maturity and completeness. Perfection is a word sometimes used. Persecution and perseverance through persecution is the funnel through which God gets all other Christian virtue to us, meaning it doesn't get to us if we don't go through it. And maybe you say, I'd just as soon avoid it and just be comfortable. None for me, thanks. I don't want persecution. I don't look forward to persecution, but I also don't want to run from it. If, that's, if God is promising all the good stuff to come to me through that. And finally, persecution comes with a promise. This has been a, a, heavy, a heavy subject to talk about today. It's been difficult at times for me to get through it without tearing up. 
And again, the temptation is to soften it a little bit to make sure it's, I, I round off the edges so it doesn't hit you as hard. But my job is to communicate exactly as the scripture lays it out. But this is the portion I like. This persecution comes with a promise. The same promise we saw in the text before us today. Persecution comes with this promise, a victor's crown. Eternal life for those that finish well, for those who are victorious, for those who are loyal to King Jesus. I will never call you to make a decision for Jesus. Again, it might start there, but I will never ask you to make a decision for Jesus. I will ask you to follow him with everything you've got. Because that is who is victorious in the end. That is who finished the race and gets that victor's crown. And that's what we're after. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I'm just going to close out before I pray. I'm going to close out with this passage from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18, if you're taking notes. Paul says this, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. <coughs> As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, or they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And I would add to it this, Be faithful even to the point of death, because promise follows persecution. For those who belong to King Jesus. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us and we pray you would make us able to persevere, able to stand in the fire as it were, figurative or literal. Lord, that we would be so determined, so motivated to follow after you that it doesn't matter what comes up, it doesn't matter what gets in our way, that you are worth pursuing as an end to itself. But even on top of that, you say there's reward for doing this. And God, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the reward that comes to the person who has followed long and hard after you. Lord, continue to work in this congregation. Continue to work in the hearts and minds of the people present. Uh, Lord, that we would be a, a congregation that was characterized by perseverance, faithfulness, loyalty, allegiance. That by simple threat against our life, that would by no way, no means, cause us to walk away, cause us to give up, cause us to recant our faith in you. Lord, it's easy to say, it's easy to come here and say these things. But then we walk out of these doors and it gets harder. Lord, give us the strength, give us the endurance to persevere. Have your way with our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.